Comic Scene, the podcast. Episode 9, Classic and Contemporary Review. Welcome to this episode of Comic Scene, the podcast, and today I'm joined by Monty Nero. Hi, Monty. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so do you want to tell our listeners uh, about your comics background? Uh, well, I write comics mainly, um, starting off with my own creator-owned comic, Death Sentence. And then that led me to doing some work for Marvel on the X-Men and Hulk. Um, and then a little bit of work for Vertigo and 2000 AD. <clears throat> and um, I've started drawing my own comics of late. Um, I started a, a graphic novel called Hollow Monsters, which I started um, whilst I was doing a master's at the University of Dundee. And um, I'm currently self-publishing uh, Death Sentence Liberty with Martin Simmons, um, who's a fantastic artist, um, done a lot of, he's doing covers for Marvel and series for uh, Vault Comics and um, um, some other Black Crown comics in America. Uh, very talented guy. Uh, we're doing Death Sentence Liberty, which is on uh, Kickstarter. So it's uh, three issues of those that we've done. Um, and that's going to be six issues in total. And then I've also got um, Frenemies with Yishan Lee, which I've written, and she's doing the art for, again, brilliant, brilliant artist. Uh, done a lot of work for Image and um, Top Cow and uh, Dark Horse and a um, bit of work for DC. Um, really top artist. So uh, very lucky to be working with those kind of people. Yeah, well, that's lots of things on the on the agenda there, and uh, and and, all, and a few things that, that that haven't been discussed before as well, which is quite interesting. The Frenemies uh, project sounds quite interesting. How did that come about? Um, well, I met I met I met Yishan at a con, um, and I, like most people, were just sort of blown away with her skills. She sits there at cons, just like drawing like a hundred sketches a day, and and earning loads of cash doing that. Um, and um, you know, I knew her comic work, um, and she's just a really nice person you know when you sit next to people at a con you often have like a, a good little chat and uh we got on quite well we ended up going out that evening with um her and her husband and uh the group i was with and we had a really great night you know getting drunk and going dancing which is my kind of uh, my <laughs> kind of thing so yeah we got on well and then um i actually thought straight away oh it'd be great if i could uh get yishan to draw this sort of comic that i want to do but I knew, because I'd spoken to her, I knew how busy she was. So I just thought there's no point asking. She's so busy. She's doing like, you know, four comics or something that month. So I just thought there's no point asking. So I just sort of didn't want to be a, a dick and sort of badger her for, what, for doing a, a, a bit of work with me. So I sort of left it. But then she got in touch with me about a year or two later. She just got in touch with me and said, um, have you got any scripts that uh, you'd like, like me to draw? And I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> hell. <laughs> so I went back and fished out this um, this comic that I had in mind for her. And the reason why I wanted to draw her to draw it is because she's such a good character designer. Um, I like designing the characters myself. Um, that's what I generally uh, do. It's an important part of the look of the comic and the feel of the comic. Um, but she was someone that I'd be totally uh, happy to just say, like, you just do your thing, you know. I'll describe the characters. You just do them. And lo and behold, she just sent back brilliant, brilliant character designs, which were exactly what I wanted. And I just thought, yeah, this is really going to work. So, mm. And then she's so quick that, you know, within like about another six weeks, she'd sort of pretty much finished the whole comic. So, oh, yeah. yeah, it was good. It's very good working with her. She's super, super professional. 
So how how will we track this down once it's... Uh... Oh, right. Well, initially, um, we want to do it ourselves to get the first issue into the right kind of shape. Uh, we want to do the first issue ourselves um, through Kickstarter. So that'll be happening in May. Um, just if you look for Frenemies on Kickstarter. Um, we'll also both obviously be the uh, social mediaing about it at the time. Mm. Um, but then after that, it'll just sort of depend how things go, you know, whether we keep on kickstartering it or whether we go through a publisher. Um, there are advantages to both. So, yeah. Well, yeah, the main thing is just to make a really great, great comic. Um, she's just done um, uh, Paradox Girl, which again um, was kickstarted. Um, I think they had it was three or six issues or it might have been three issues sort of twice that they did on Kickstarter. Mm. And that's just come out through Image, you know, as, as a book. Yeah. So it's a good model, I think. Yeah. Because um, the trouble with doing sort of stuff through images, they don't they don't pay you to make it, so you have got to find some way to, to sort of finance the making of it, really. Yeah. So you've been using well, you've been going down that route more and more often, I suppose, for your projects recently, mm. and you, you you obviously find that's that's working out. Yeah, I think Kickstarter is a wonderful thing. I I often think, oh, what would Jack Kirby have done with Kickstarter? You know, think of the worlds he would have built, <laughs> or yeah. Mobius, or. Or even like Alan Moore when he started, if he if he'd just done his own Kickstarter comics instead of, you know, what a, what a world we would live in, you know. Yeah, so he liberates you, doesn't it? Yeah, person, yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason why I got into comics is because it's so simple to do exactly what you want. You haven't got all this bureaucracy that you have with other media like film or TV or radio, um, which I dabble in a little, but it's always the same sort of story. It's always just like a massive kind of ball ache to get anything made. You have to jump through loads of hoops and you end up changing stuff and you end up the thing that's getting made isn't really what you wanted it to be in the first place but you just sort of you put so much work into it you don't want to sort of work walk away mm -hmm. so the great thing about comics is it's just like you and your artist and you're sort of in a room or you're just sort of talking over the internet and um, you're just making exactly what you want to make and i think as a result that's why so many great kind of uh, stories come from comics is because that purity and that personality is absolutely key to making a magical story um, and having like, you know, 10 other people getting involved and putting their kind of opinion and their focus group and the marketing and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really help. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, I, that's what I like about comics. So the thing about Kickstarter is it just, it just totally keeps it at that level. It's you and your artist and you just make what you want and people either like it or they don't. So it either will or will not make money. So it's very much a sort of, um, keeps everything down to the bare bones, no bullshit. So do you think as well, though, that there's a better connection to the audience then? Therefore, oh, yeah, that's yeah. the other thing I love about it. Having started off with Death Sentence doing my own comic, and um, what I loved about that, the initial sort of issue, which I published myself, what I loved about it was that personal connection. You were like actually seeing your audience, you were getting the feedback from them, and you had some sort of relationship with them. Mm -hmm. So initially, I mean, the first issue of Death Sentence, when I was just self-publishing it, sort of sold like in the hundreds, do you know what I mean? But I, I kind of knew all those people on some level. I knew who they were and I knew what they thought about it and they were really enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like when you discover a band for the first time and nobody else knows about it. You get really sort of um, proprietorial about it and, and you feel an emotional connection to it. And I loved having that relationship with the readers and they seemed to like having that relationship with me. And then um, obviously it got picked up with Titan and then they published it wider. But I was still able to keep that relationship because I sort of built up a mailing list with people and I, I kept very personally involved in letting everybody know about what was happening with the comic and 
why we were doing each kind of issue and when it was how it was being collected and so on and so forth so it was a really good experience that and that's very different to when i've done like when i wrote my first x-men which was um a story with storm um an x-men annual with storm and it was um it's all about sixty-five thousand copies or something um but of those people i probably personally met or spoke to about 10 <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you've got 65,000 people of which, you know, 10 of them have a personal connection to you. Because let's be honest, the reason why they all bought that comic was because it's Storm and the X-Men. They didn't buy it because of me. So so um, I was glad the story was well reviewed and, it, you know, it seemed to go down well. But you just don't get that sort of personal satisfaction and that sort of relationship with your readers that you do from self-publishing or from Kickstarter. And you don't get the same freedom either. You don't get the same freedom to express your own ideas in storytelling characters do progressive kind of forward thinking things and um yeah just 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 sort of be yourself really there's room for both though isn't there i mean obviously you still will go into that world you know i was thinking about this this morning i was thinking yeah the ideal balance is to do a little bit of both because um i really enjoy doing things that i wouldn't normally do i find that if i do something i like to take on like just jobs for you know, comic jobs for other people every now and then because it kind of forces me to do something I wouldn't normally do and it forces me to keep that discipline of just fulfilling a sort of brief and and um, and just doing, keeping sort of uh, clear basic storytelling principles. I never want to be the sort of creator that disappears up his own arse, you know, with sort of experimentation and so forth. I want to, I want to always kind of, and every time I do something that I would not normally have thought that I would do, I always learn something and I always get something out of it. And uh, it always teaches me something, like maybe a new style of drawing or a new approach to sort of telling a story or um, I meet a new collaborator that I wouldn't have met otherwise. Mm. So I always find that is very useful. And also, you just need to... It's kind of an interesting place in the world at the moment with this kind of balance between creator-owned and published, traditional published comics. No one's quite sure of the status of anything or where it's going to end up. So I think it's good to keep a sort of... uh, a thumb in both pies as it were and uh um yeah i think for me the main thing is you've got i've got to get my creator own stuff done first i've got to make sure that i've got sort of three or four books that are kind of exploring the ideas i want to explore formally the sort of technical aspects of comic storytelling but also just in terms of characters and story ideas and so forth so i've long as long as i've got those kind of they're going and they're, they're sound then i'm quite happy to then do some stuff for publishers and things and um, do some work if I'm lucky enough to, to, to be chosen to do that sort of work. Um, I don't take it for granted by any means. So, so I think I think it is good to do both, but I very much would put the creator own stuff first. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's maybe flipped the expectation of maybe when you first got into industry? Because I know, you know, there's, when you get into the, or try to get into the industry, the kudos is in getting to the big publishers. It's like, oh, I want to work for 2000 AD or I want to work for Marvel or yeah. DC. But then you think when you get there, is it what you thought it would be? Um, no, not for me, because when I started making Death Sentence, I'd been working in computer games for years. So computer games is very well kind of paid and it's creative. Um, but you end up making these products that sometimes you've got like 100 people on the team and they might sell like, you know, three million copies of something of a game that you've made, but you don't feel any kind of personal kind of satisfaction or ownership. Even I used to design characters a lot for the game, so I'd have a pretty fair input into like, you know, 
the final look of the game and the feel of it and stuff. But I'd never feel that it was it was like my vision because it would always have been changed by multiple people and yeah. multiple events over like usually. I mean, some games take like three years to make. So, so the whole attraction for me of doing comics was just to do my own thing, and I was very much set on self-publishing. I wanted to self-publish, and I wanted to to just express new ideas and new ways of doing comics, and and I wasn't really interested particularly in what the rest of the world thought about it. I didn't, I wasn't on social media or anything. I just, I just wanted to make a comic, and I wanted it to be a comic I was proud of, and sort of said things about the world that I thought were 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 interesting and. Uh, ways expressed ways of telling stories and comics that I thought were were um, valid and, and worth exploring, um, and yeah, um, it was very gratifying when loads of people liked it and it became like a bigger thing and it sold, you know, all around the world. Um, but that wasn't the the kind of focus of it. Um, you obviously need to have an audience in order to keep making comics. Yeah. So you know, I take it very seriously that I need to entertain people and so forth. But I think fundamentally. If it's not something I believe in, I'm not going to make it. That, that comes through in the work, though, doesn't it? Because I've had people say to me, I'm going to be the next big thing or I want to be the next big thing. And it's mm. like not the way to look at it because you're not doing arguably your best work. You're sort of pandering to a perceived audience. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think when you go in with that attitude, you're probably never going to achieve that. You know, you're yeah. never going to achieve that. Whereas if you go in with something that is maybe more personal or. You're not going out uh, looking at it from a money-making point of view, yeah. F- first and foremost, then there's a actually a greater likelihood it will it will connect with people. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I'm always wary of anyone that kind of has that kind of attitude. <laughs> it does um, happen though. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think as well when I've spoken to sort of editors and publishers, you know, at some of the big companies like Marvel, very much what they're, they're all comic fans. The, the, that's the, that's why they get into the business is because they're comic fans. So what interests them as well is some kind of new take on or something that is very different to what they're doing. Mm. The last thing they want to see is like a sort of copy of like one of their superhero comics or a sort of a, a Wolverine type character or something like that. Or um, because it's just well, you know, we've got like literally like we know thousands of people that can do that. So so um, it doesn't matter what way you're looking at it. I think. Um, doing your own thing is is uh, the way to go. You've touched upon this and uh, just there actually. I mean, how important do you think it is? How how do you set yourself apart in that respect? And how do you how do you get your work to be original? Mm. I think the key to it is to just look to your own experiences and um, like the, the sort of life you're living. Um, if you're going to create original work, you have to sort of be living an original life. You have to have original thoughts. Um, I think um, there's a danger of a lot of work that I see that it just, it, especially with the Instagram type culture, is like people are seeing work online and they're trying to sort of mimic it in some way. And you see a lot of very sort of samey stuff, mm. tonally, very samey. Uh, I think tone is massively underlooked as far as like an intentional, uh, an integral part of a creative work and an inter- of, a, of a comic. So um, it's important to have like, original kind of characters, original stories, an original tone, an original voice. And it's not rocket science. You just sort of, <clears throat> if you read comics, as I do, it's sort of like, well, I can see everyone's doing that. So whatever I do, I'll make sure I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, I mean, any creative person, you'll have like five ideas a day. You know, you'll have lots of ideas. I've got books full of thousands of ideas. 
So it's literally just going and choosing the ones that are like interesting. Mm -hmm. And if it seems interesting and original to me, hopefully it'll be interesting and original to other people. Not always, but um, um, that's very much how, how I approach it. I mean, Hollow Monsters, which is the graphic novel that I'm working on, which explores a lot of, um, I think, very, very interesting sort of storytelling ideas um, to do with the, fo the formal elements of, of how comics work. Um, and it's kind of autobiographical and it's um, it concerns like a, a, a child growing up in the 80s and um, you see them later when they're in their 40s and all the characters kind of meet up again and there's sort of like a dark secret that they're kind of, kind of talking around and discovering as they kind of reconnect with each other. Um, to me, I like the fact that it's it's not a genre. It's very much like a real world kind of story. So I'm using a lot of storytelling techniques that I use in Death Sentence, but I'm just using them in a, a lot less of a kind of um, a genre kind of setting. But also, um, you know, it's just it's just that that the, the themes and the sort of tone of it um, are like nothing else that I'm kind of seeing. And as a result, it hasn't got like a massive audience. It's not like one of these things where you just sort of plug into a ready-made audience that are just like dying to see that. But I really, I, to me, it's the most important thing I'm working on because it's, it's the most original thing that I'm doing. So, and that's what keeps me kind of going creatively is, is having that project to sort of um, constantly kind of fall back on. Mm -hmm. And because I'm doing that, it means I'm a lot, I'm a lot happier doing other things that aren't like um, necessarily breaking down barriers with storytelling techniques. Because sometimes you can go too far with that and it alienates people. So so um, something like Death Sentence is much more of a commercial comic and it's a much more easy sell. I just sort of describe it to someone in a sentence and they're like, oh, that sounds cool. Let me check it out. So, so but with that, there are lots of um, radical kind of storytelling stuff in it, but it's all kind of like under the hood. It's all just, it just reads like a really fun action story. And then you sort of like the themes and the deeper messages kind of hit you later. So, um, uh, and then other things like when I do, when I've been lucky enough to do the, the, the odd story for Marvel, that's much more just like straight um, comic book storytelling, um, nothing too uh, revolutionary going on as far as like the structure of the stories. But just, again, that's just a really challenging discipline to tell a really great story in that kind of context and to say something original about the characters and something interesting about the characters, mm -hmm. which I was, I, I think I did with my last X-Men story. I was really happy with, with that. Have you ever been tempted uh, to, you know, you, you've written for Marvel. Uh, mm -hmm. Have you ever been tempted to, to push into the art side or do something like that, like a written and drawn by? You know? Yeah, I mean, uh, there is the possibility of doing that. I think, um, I think I need to get better at doing the art side. I mean, I am getting better at it as I practice and as I as I do more. I need to get I need to get faster at it. Um, but also, I find. Um, to be honest, I mean, I've, I've written and I've drawn for most of my adult life. And the response is always better when I write. Um, when I draw, I think people, a lot of people will say that my, my drawing's nice. You know, it's good. It's a good standard. You know, it looks professional. It's, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing you know, too bad about it. But there's nothing equally that's, like, massively exciting about it. I don't think I'm ever going to be the most exciting comic artist in the world, no matter how hard I try or how hard I practice. Whereas with writing, I think there's genuinely something there that is quite um, special. That's certainly the feedback I get when, when I write stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm much better off concentrating on writing. And it's only really because Hollow Monsters explores so many kind of very particular and specific ideas about, about the structure of comic pages that I feel that I need to draw that myself because it's just too exacting for anyone else to do. 
Do you think that's because you're maybe originally more of a visual person? Do you think that's sort of pushed into the way that you write? Do you think that's a factor? Yeah, I think I think uh, that definitely helps because it takes away. I think a lot a lot of times when people write comics, they worry a lot about how it's going to work on the page and how it's going to look on the page, and it kind of like hamstrings them. Ham, you know, it slows them up a bit. Um, whereas me, because I've been involved with comics so long, you know, I was you know drawing comics with David Lloyd on this course when I was like 17 and he was giving me feedback about you know what works and what didn't so I've got a very clear idea about you know how comic pages work and and the, the sort of formal properties of them and so forth mm. so so um, yeah I find that when I write comics um, I can just be very free and I can just concentrate on the things that are important like the originality of the structure of the comic the themes and the characters and the dialogue and I know that as long as I keep within certain parameters that the comic page is going to work and the structure of the comic is going to work. I think what's been more challenging for me is um, is more like dealing with like 22-page comics, like the American format, because mm-hmm. all my sort of background is more in doing short stories and uh, sort of British-length stories, you know, you know, five, six-page episodic stories. So when I switch to having to do sort of 22-page stories and thinking about graphic novels and stuff, that's actually, it's a very different kind of pace and sort of form of writing. And uh, I found that doing both at the same time sort of messed me up a bit because when you write short, condensed stories, you use techniques that aren't really appropriate, especially nowadays in sort of longer format comics. So, um, and there's things you can do in a 22-page format comic that you just can't do in a five-page comic and vice versa. So um, yeah, I found that that I have I've had to think about that quite a lot and sort of check myself and I have to check that quite a lot um, to make. But I guess because the rest of it is I find quite straightforward, it's it's not it's not too difficult. Okay, so we're going to mix up the format very slightly today, and uh, we're going to start with your new choice of comic to, to uh, discuss. Yes. yes, brilliant. Well, this was uh, one of the most exciting. Um, graphic novels that I read last year mm. um, Cassandra Dark by Posey Simmons right. so um, the first thing I want to say about this is um, the the cover design which is just so iconic and just a brilliant brilliant character <laughs> Yeah. so what I loved about this the first time I saw it was um, you know she's clearly a, uh, an older larger pissed off lady and uh, she's got this sort of like, um, you know, she looks a little bit like the old Giles grandma. You know what I mean? Yeah, There's yeah. a touch of that about yeah. the design. She's got a scarf. She's got the the hat, the fluffy hat with the, the flap ears. She's got these big sort of, there's no rubber gloves on, a handbag, big old overcoat, um, pom-poms and the gun. So all together, it's just a really arresting image. Yeah. And um, to me, that's just, I mean, I've always thought Posey Simmons is a brilliant sort of, sign of characters and a renderer of characters and that's just one of her greatest kind of creations I think mm. and um, I just really loved immediately that that image and what it kind of promised and that's that's that sort of ties in what I was saying earlier about character design being an important part of of comics and, and comic storytelling because that character basically is the cover uh, the rest of it is kind of like you know there's some some smudgy background and a railing and some bushes and a bit of London in the background but the character really is the cover, and that's the tone of the comic and the mm. sort of subject of the comic, and it promises so much. And that's what I did when I designed the characters in Death Sentence. I just tried to come up with characters that where you look at them 
you immediately see something that's a little bit different and a little bit kind of interesting. Um, like the male characters in Death, in Death Sentence are quite androgynous. Um, they've all got like, these tattoos, um, holding sort of bottles of vodka or guitars. Um, Verity is an artist, she's often holding a paintbrush. So you get these juxtaposition of things that kind of just make it look a bit interesting. Yeah. Certainly at the time anyway. But, um, you know, this was just a really, really fantastic character and um, is one of my main things that I like about the, the comic. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's the first thing. Um, then when we get into the comic, straight away, we've got like um, this thing that uh, Posey Simmons does where she's using a lot of um, prose. So she uses these prose blocks. Um, so she does the, you know, comic booking, traditional sort of comic book storytelling, but often it's in a very condensed space, small little panels, sort of faces with just a little balloon next to them, quite squashed in. And that frees up a bit of space to have these big prose blocks, which is a really interesting, quite unusual approach to, mm. to comic book yeah. storytelling. So, um, and then there's the tone of her... Uh, stuff straight away it's like first person so it's straight into the head of this this character Cassandra Dark and she goes last December the 21st to be precise and not so long before they came to arrest me I remember buying macaroons in Burlington Arcade so that's one of the great opening sentences <laughs> you know great. of fiction it's yeah. just a, it's just really fantastic storytelling it's like a really you always want to grab people with your first sentence mm -hmm. and that really has everything it's got character it's got location, it's got a sort of a hook and a, a premise. You sort of totally get a sense. You're plunged straight into a situation and a character and you're immediately intrigued. So that's um, one of the main reasons why I like Posey Simmons is because she's a really good writer and she's a really good car uh, cartoonist and um, she's great with caricatures and characters and body language and uh, capturing the essence of someone through the way they look, the little changes in their expression, um, but also dialogue as well. Her dialogue's fantastic. She's got a great ear for dialogue. The way she sort of writes the dialogue, she does this stuff where um, she uses sort of a lot of, um, you know, the sort of uh, three dots to just indicate like a little pause yeah. between. So people don't talk in complete sentences. They talk like naturally as they would with sort of, um, you know, gaps in their language and, and, and sort of, unorthodox sentence structure, um, abbreviations and so forth. So um, she's really good at all that sort of stuff. Um, now, the thing with Posey Simmons is she's very much kind of concerned with this middle class kind of uh, themes and characters traditionally. Um, and certainly with Cassandra Dark, we're still sort of in that wheelhouse. Um, but um, she does also, in this book, she, she introduces um, sort of a different perspective, some more working class characters um and uh, different points of view which um is kind of not quite as successful i think as far as uh, you know being a, a brilliant bit of fiction but still uh, still it's a really great graphic novel and, and definitely one of my favorites of of last year and of course the main the main thing you see straight away with this beautiful watercolor um on the page it's just so evocative of london at christmas yeah, i mean yeah. it's it's so simple yeah, like pencil and then a bit of watercolor, um, but she's a real master of it. You can see her breath in the bottom part yeah. of page six, and it just it yeah, does feel like you're walking along Oxford Street or something. It's like you're there, there, isn't it? Yeah, it's like it feels cold. It feels Christmassy. It feels like you're the busy busyness and the grime of the city. Yeah, 
Yeah. He's an absolute master at this sort of thing. So uh, definitely one of the most talented comic book creators um, <clears throat> that we've got <clears throat> in this country, I think. So, um, yeah, the the thing that I also find really interesting about our work is this this heavy use of like blocks of prose so at times it reads like a novel um and it's like p chunky paragraphs of text and what that enables her to do is add a lot more depth and sort of texture to the story and to the characterizations um now a lot of people have a problem with it because they sort of say oh it's not really comics or it kind of interrupts the flow of the comic which is uh, perfectly valid I don't know what you think. Well, it's interesting. We were talking the last episode uh, to David Robertson. We were talking about text stories and annuals and how I used yeah. to skip them. But, yeah. but that's a different thing. That's a huge block of text yeah. and one image. Yeah. Whereas this, the page is still laid out in a comic way, yeah. you know, with panels. So when you do get a dense bit of text, really that could just be in a, in a traditional sense in a comic caption mm. box. And you would read that as part of the story. So it, it doesn't jump out to me as being a, a problem or too wordy. In fact, when you look at that page, the, the, the first double page spread we've got in front of us here, there's actually not that much text on it. There's not a lot of text in the imagery. So that's quite interesting. That they've stripped yeah. it out of the image. Yeah. Uh, so it gives it room to breathe. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an unusual format, though. And I wonder how involved she is in the typography of it. Mm. That's what interests me because I'm looking at, you know, page seven, mm -hmm. the first uh, panel, and there's a gap for the text yeah. um, that fits that space. So you sort of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, working working the, the, the text around the image. Mm. And I just wonder how involved in the, pro if she typesets it or just indicates the I think, I think the she must be very, very involved. Yeah. Um, because she's always, you know, way back to, you know, the Webbers that she was doing in The Guardian sort of... Um, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, she's always lettered her own stuff. Yeah. And then you see that sort of evolution of it through to um, Gemma Bovary and then Tamara Drew and and then um, onto this. Um, it's kind of refined over the years. And obviously she's using more, you know, um, set sort of fonts now rather than hand lettering for mm -hmm. a lot of it. Not all of it, but um, the, the prose elements particularly. Mm -hmm. So um, I think she, she must be very much um, doing it herself because um the sort of interplay between the various elements is so yeah. key yeah and i'd say this is probably the most successful one she's done as far as sometimes certainly with um Gemma bovary i find that some of the prose kind of is kind of not quite sitting in harmony with the amount of comic strip and the amount of imagery yeah and it's a little bit kind of um disjointed and a little bit hard to read sometimes and it's a little bit stop start and I think that also at that stage, she was making those graphic novels very much as one page for The Guardian, and then it would get collected at the end. Yeah. So it was very much initially sort of like, well, this is a page for The Guardian. And, and she found, I think, initially that one of the reasons why it works is because with the text, you can get a lot more into the page. Um, but sometimes, certainly when she started off doing it, it feels a little bit. Um, heavy and a little bit um, unbalanced mm -hmm. but this is a lot more kind of because I think this was always going to be a graphic novel and it's still using the same techniques it's a lot sort of better balanced and there's a lot more of a flow yeah and if you actually look on this opening two pages six and seven at the amount of text on the pages um, you could very easily um, in a traditional comic book you could just make the images larger and you could put all that text yeah, into a succession yeah. of caption boxes yeah. 
and it would then flow across the pages and it would be much more like a traditional comic. Yeah. So it's just the fact that she's choosing to put them in these sort of paragraphs that's kind of um, you know, contrary to the way a lot of people think comics should work. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's really, I don't think, I, just, I, I think it works and I think it's really important as far as like the future of comics and uh, the people's understanding of what comics is. Because, you know, um, people like McLeod, McLeod describes comics as a juxtaposed pictorial, um, uh, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in a deliberate sequence intended to convey information and to produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. So, so that's very much putting the emphasis on the pictorial yeah. and the sequence. Whereas um, uh, this is definitely a comic, it's a graphic novel, but a lot of what goes on isn't pictorial at all. It's very much uh, based on the text. And also, it doesn't necessarily have to be sequential in the fact that a lot of these pages, they, all, they almost work like collages. Yeah. It's like images that you can sort of take in and you piece them together. So you get that thing that McLeod's always going on about the closure between panels in, in the gutters. But really, you get closure all the time in comics between all kinds of different elements. And here you get a lot of them between the prose elements, mm -hmm. uh, the prose elements, different paragraphs, um, the, the, the dialogue, uh, and then the, the prose beneath. You'll get sort of closure between that. Um, you'll get um, you'll read a paragraph of a, of a and then you'll read you'll see a little comic strip afterwards, and the two things will give you a new bit of information. So there's closure yeah. between that. So you can get closure in all kinds of different ways, and that's really how I like to think about comics. When I make my own comics, I'm very much thinking about it not as a sequence. I'm thinking about it as a web of meaning. Mm -hmm. So you get meaning that can be conveyed not just on a page or in a sequence, but you know you can have callbacks to things that happen like ten or fourteen pages earlier. You can juxtapose different scenes from different times together between sort of panels. And then you can do this thing where you put in like um, prose, which tells you something different than the images are telling you or puts a different spin on it or something. Yeah. So I think um, it's very much, um, to me, it kind of like challenges McLeod's definition of what a comic is and how comics work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important bit of work. All her, all her comics I've always found really fascinating for that reason. Yeah. Um, just sort of the way they work formally. Um, as well as being like just really great comics, really brilliantly drawn and uh, really interesting stories. So, um, yeah, with her, um, I don't know anything about publishing. I don't know anything about the middle-class world that she moves in. But um, she totally brings it alive to me and I get really invested in it. I get really invested in the situations and the characters and they're often really well-observed and uh, quite funny and and rich so um that's always what i look for in a in a comic book um the thing about it is sort of as we found from dr kirtley's work you know with the eye tracker you know up at aberdeen which i know you've been mm -hmm. involved in um we've sort of learned from that that text is kind of quite magnetic to the eye so um the the text leads the eye around the page even when, which is quite frustrating for an artist, you know, <laughs> yeah. when I've laid out a page and I yeah. think like, oh, this is how it's going to flow based on the images and the panel structure. And then the letter comes on and does something and you realise that, I know actually the, le the lettering is leading the eye around the page and it's, over it's overriding what I've intended. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's why I think it's really important. That's why I letter my own work and I, when I'm drawing it um, because um, the text does kind of, is dominant as far as how the eye is led around the page yeah. and it needs to work very much with the art to tell the story yep. so that again is why i find this very interesting because um if i'm reading a block of prose i'm often looking to the next block 
because I want to carry on that. But then there's sort of, she's positioned a sort of little vignette of like a three panel strip in between. And I take that in in between. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like a, a really interesting structure. Well, that's interesting. You, you, you picked up on that because that was my first observation of this is that it is leading your eye around the page in a completely different way yeah. from a traditional comic. And obviously we were a part of that research in, in Dundee. And what was interesting about that was the fact that um, the, the eye gaze was on the text within the imagery much more than it ever was on the actual art. So, yeah. you know, so even as an artist myself, yeah. when I read comics now, within a panel that has lots of speech, I'm spending much more time looking at the text than I ever look at. The, the art is almost now subconsciously taken in yeah. as I move through a page. Now, this it almost forces you to look at the art in a different way and hold on it in a different way you yeah. know, than a traditional comic yeah. would. And, and like you said earlier, you could take that text and put it into these images and then then, then you're having to sort of fight your way around an image or through an image in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. I quite like the fact that there isn't... Well, there is some, obviously, instances where there is um, word balloons in, in some of the panels, but mm. generally speaking... It gives you a much more open sense of the of the artwork. Yeah, you get a sense of time from it. Yeah, you get a sense of time and space. Um, in this initial sequence, she's sort of wandering around um, London, central London, at Christmas, and she sees someone she wants to avoid, and she ducks into a shop, and she looks disparagingly at all the Christmas decorations and the sickening sort of uh, commercialism of it all, and sort of makes a few. Um, uh, acidic comments so <laughs> so um but you get um it's almost like you're invited to sort of meander your eyes meander mm. around the art um almost at your at your leisure and it's quite subtle though because there is definitely a structure to it mm-hmm. but um you do get that sense of space and time just from like um, um there's so much to look at in the panels as well i mean they're not detailed i mean they're not there's not a lot of fiddly detail but there's a lot in them yeah she's always got a very sort of um fluid abbreviated way of drawing um and um she gets a lot of information in there and that's really what it is it's about visual information and it's about text information the information that combines to make a new kind of form of knowledge in your head and that's what makes a comic good and and letting the reader do the work in that way is really the key to good comic storytelling and um like i say uh it's it's basically a web of a web of meaning with all kinds of like um, information coming from different sources and she uses like uh, bits of torn kind of newspaper clippings she uses like text messages sometimes there's just images of like individual um, items that are integral to the part like someone's handbag or, or a glove or you know some sort of detail that's kind of uh, interesting and you just sort of glance at it um, I mean this page here this is on page 13 this is basically mainly, it's like a illustrated novel at this point. It's basically all text. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still read really well. I didn't find it um, jarring like I found some of Jim of Bovary. Um, it, just, it just got you really deep into the story. I think the advantage of prose is you can get a lot more information into a smaller space. So you can add a lot of texture and you can add a lot of depth to the characters particularly. Um, so by 13, she's sort of like, got herself into this terrible situation where she's been an awful person and a liar and uh, done something criminal and then she's just narrowly escaped jail and then um she, but she doesn't give a shit so so immediately i'm like oh I'm totally with this girl you know she's totally <laughs> she's just such a great character yeah. um 
it's it's really rare to see characters that are older women and that are uh, bad tempered and like not very nice. Um, uh, but I still really, you know, I'm interested in like her as a per- as a character. I'm interested in the story. I'm interested in her. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that that phenomenon because I I found that with some of the characters I've written, they're terrible, terrible people, but people were still quite captivated by them and quite interested in their in their exploits. Mm. Um, and I don't know what it is about human nature that um, people are drawn to that. So maybe it's just interesting and it's kind of part of the thing you can do of a, a work of fiction is you can have that sort of voyeuristic kind of um, interest in, in the thing, but it doesn't matter because it's not real and, and it's all just sort of a bit of entertainment. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a really nice bit of storytelling. I think the, 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 the concept of the book and the start of the book, the first half of the book, a lot more successful than the sort of ending of it um kind of not quite as strong at the end but definitely um you know a really fantastic bit of storytelling i mean i think you've always got to be there to read what she's putting out because she's such a talented comic book um maker yeah i mean i think the cover and come back to the cover actually just what you mentioned there is how arresting that image is and it gives you some of the hints of what's to come without giving anything away at all Mm -hmm. but then you know when you get into it when you actually get into it then then it starts to make a bit more sense why that image is so strong and important and you know and different as well and it is about the design of it it is a designed look and feel you know there's a lot it looks to me like there's been a lot of work gone into the design part yeah. of the process which yeah. sometimes is glossed over you know and yeah, people it's really just revert to type and yeah. people just do a standard grid and people just yeah. you know, stick to a kind of very you know bog standard format and, and don't break yeah, out of that yeah that's true she's fantastically original with her layouts and everything yeah um, and I guess a lot of that comes from just trying f- to find ways to get the prose in and fit the comic strips within that but not in a way that seems kind of cramped, mm-hmm. which is very adept at. I mean, here on page 24, we've got, like, she's considering killing herself. So she's talking about different ways she can kill herself. Um, and um, she's just sort of marching through the streets, and there's all these little images above the panel of, like, pills and a gun and a noose and a razor and a cliff and um, freezing to death outside. And then she sees these sort of stones in her garden that look sort of like gravestones or someone huddled over sort of freezing to death. And she thinks, she decides that's the best way to do it. Right. Just like sit outside there in the cold and let the sort of weather take her. So, um, yeah, she's in a very dark place and she's not a very nice person. Um, and um, then um, something happens, you know, something happens to her, some external event happens that sort of spins her life into a, a new direction. Uh, through some of the other characters um, that she knows. This is a really good sequence. It's typical Posey Simmons where you've got like, this is basically, I mean that, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight panels on the sort of top half of the page. This is page 25. And then you've got prose underneath that. Um, and then you've got another um, four panels beneath that again. So those top eight panels for other creators, that would basically be a page of comics. Yes, yeah. But she's kind of, what she's done there with the storytelling, you've got the body language, a full body picture of her reacting to the gravel on the floor and then sort of trying to figure out what it is. And she's using thought balloons, which I love. I love people that use thought (laughs) balloons because the thing about thought balloons is they're just crap if you don't do it, if if you take the piss with them and you don't kind of use them correctly. But there's nothing intrinsically 
um, wrong with thought balloons. Yeah, they can be a very effective literary device. Um, and she's great with just, you know, having natural kind of thoughts coming through as events are happening and making the character kind of very, very real in that sense. And, uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's just a really nice bit of comic book storytelling. But it's in such a small kind of area that there's still space to have this kind of deeper text from the, the prose elements and mm. things like that. Yeah, it's interesting that thought, I thought thought uh, bubbles uh, kind of went uh, out of fashion, you know. Yeah, I think, Alan Moore's yeah, it is. Yeah, I think yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see why it was exciting at the time to sort of say like, "Oh, we're going to have comics be taken seriously by not having all these childish things like thought balloons," and it's kind of almost like marketing. The people didn't like the thought balloons and they didn't like the sound effects. Mm. But really, if you examine it with a neutral eye. Sound effects are one of the most effective parts of comics. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're very evocative. And it's, they're the thing that people always, always refer to, which I know some people get tired of when they <laughs> write the lazy newspaper headline. Powers up. Yeah, um, but the fact is that's because right. it's very much something that resonates in your mind. It resonates in your body and your mind. A, a sound effect really resonates with you. And that, within a skillfully used within a story that is a very powerful thing yeah and i find i mean i love v for vendetta but because it doesn't have sound effects i find some of the sequences confusing because you, there's no sound and the sound would have added a lot but they decided that they're not going to use that technique so i prefer to use sound effects i use sound effects in my work especially when it's incorporated into the artwork I think, yeah as totally well. it has you to know? be part of yeah, the artwork yeah. yeah yeah it has to be um if you if you treat it just like you treat any other part of the artwork rather than something that's overlaid lazily as an afterthought so that the, the typography expresses what it is that needs to be expressed by that space, that moment in the comic. You can do so much with it, and some, some artists do that. And in this, actually, speaking about that, I mean, she's taken a lot of time mm. to incorporate the, the, the actual comics lettering when, you, when that is in place yeah. into the panel. And again, that has been designed in a way, and it's mixing it up all the time. So sometimes mm. it's in balloons, sometimes it isn't, sometimes it's... Uh, it's a sharp edge, sometimes it's soft, yeah. sometimes it's a thought balloon, sometimes it's a line to the text, yeah, you know, again, so she's mixing all these yeah, different she's techniques. She's incredible. Part of the reason why her work is so expressive is because her typography and her lettering is fantastic and the way she uses all these different little kind of symbols and images and little marks to change the tone of the what's being said and, uh, you know, the way she even writes, like, prancing ponce there as the... Cassandra Dark disparagingly looks at a jogger going past. Um, just everything about the text is super expressive. It's so much better. I use like, a, I'm not great at lettering, so I use like, you know, computer fonts. And mine are nowhere near as good as hers because she's hand lettering it and the, the lettering has as much kind of emotion and personality as the characters themselves. So, so um, yeah, she's brilliant at that sort of thing. And she's been doing that so long, she must do it kind of in her sleep. She's mm. so good at that sort of stuff. Yeah. This, this is where... I start to have um, criticisms. Uh, it's not quite as effective as it could be, in my view. So at this point in the story, which is page 33, we're introducing like this younger character, her niece, um, Nikki, who, and she does a, a good job of bringing that character to life and observing like the details of her life, which is obviously very different to her own life now and also to Cassandra Dark's life. Um, but... The, the way she chooses to do this is she sort of does it in the third person. So we switch from first person kind of prose for Cassandra Dark and we go to third person for Nikki. So it goes to things like 
The problem for Nikki was how to balance her distaste for the extreme ponciness of Cassandra's part of town with the benefits she enjoyed there. So, so you're getting that kind of, and it very much immediately is kind of quite distancing. Mm. And you sort of like, um, there's no reason why you can't also have Nikki's life and all these sequences in the same first person as Cassandra's. That would work just as well. But um, Posey Simmons doesn't do that. And she does that quite a lot. She tends to have a character where it'll be first person and the others are more third person. And to me, that never is as effective as, as it could be. Um because you're very much being told what this person is kind of thinking, which is never the best way to sort of tell a story. It's better to sort of show what they're thinking and to experience what they're thinking rather than have it sort of be from a third third person. Mm. So that is um, um, not quite as effective as it could be. It's still the same brilliant kind of juxtaposition of prose and imagery and and uh these are almost like still illustrations these sort of four here in the middle of the page that kind of build a picture of what life is like in one of these squares which again i know nothing about but totally brings it all to life for me um and then and then she goes on this awful hen night and gets really drunk and um all the details of the hen night and the girls night out and the kind of like uh her sort of um horror of it but also the fact that she eventually enjoys getting drunk it's all very well observed and very real mm. This sort of, um, um, and then she meets this terrible, dodgy character in a bar, who um, kind of assaults her, and that brings in like a criminal element into the story. That then, um, um, then that's where the, the plot isn't quite as successful as it could be either, because it, the plot starts to rely a bit on coincidence, which is never good, um, and also. Um, through through this niece, we are introduced to this sort of criminal element characters, um, this boyfriend of hers and like some of his friends, who are like really dodgy sort of gangsters in London, and they're not as well observed. I mean, it's still good stuff, but you can tell that Posey Simmons doesn't really know these kind of people, the the language that they use and the way they behave and stuff. It's a little bit like characters you'd see on Minder, <laughs> rather than actual <laughs> actual working class mm -hmm. kind of. Uh, uh, men and actual sort of gangsters um, so um, that's not quite as successful and also technically as well what she ends up doing and again she's done this before in sort of um, Gemma Bovary and so forth is you end up you've got this third po third person voice telling you about uh, Nikki who's the younger woman in the in the story but then from from that you then have her perspective of what her boyfriend is saying so it's like then she's got these sequences saying like Billy said, OK, maybe Dino couldn't help it because he's on medication, but he was a bastard with women all the same. So it's kind of like third person removed by uh, someone else in the third person telling you what someone else is thinking. And again, to me, that's quite clumsy and there's no reason for that to be that way. And it would have been better if we'd have just sort of been with Dino at that point and followed you know, his little, it doesn't have to be... Uh, I know he's not the main character, but you can still have supporting characters have their own very strong sort of first-person personality and voice and life in a story, and that will add to the richness rather than having to use this convoluted third-person telling you about somebody else technique, which to me is quite weak. It seems like a very conscious decision, though. Yeah, it's very yeah, conscious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's. I mean, it's to me, it's it's one of the weaknesses of all her books is that she's not brilliant at plotting. And she's not, um, some of the techniques that she uses are absolutely magnificent and the best in the world. 
and sometimes some of the techniques she uses, I think because she probably doesn't read a lot of comics. She's not really necessarily aware that you don't have to do it that way. You can do you know other ways of having those characters and it won't unbalance the story. I think a lot of writers think like, well, I've got the first person view of my story, so I can't be flitting into the minds of all these other people from their first person because mm -hmm. it'll be confusing. Mm -hmm. But if you read other comics, you realise that it's not. And that's actually quite a common thing in comics to have lots of people with their own first person view of things. And that's actually works really well and it adds to the richness. I mean, that's just my opinion. I mean, other people might feel differently, but that's how I find it. The other thing she does a lot, um, she does this a lot in Tamara and Drew as well, is she'll have like a sequence of storytelling of a scene that's happened and you'll get all the details of it. And you'll just read it like a regular scene, but then you almost won't notice until you get to the end that it's all been in like a thought balloon. Yeah, yeah I did so, just notice that. Yeah, yeah, so it's like a sequence of like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen 15 panels. And then at the bottom, all those 15 panels you see happened in a thought balloon and it's actually being remembered by one of the characters as she walks through the street. Mm -hmm. She's remembering the conversation and if you think about it that does happen a lot you are you're often when you're walking around you're in your own head thinking about some conversation you had earlier maybe thinking about things you should have said or would like to have said and and that's if you're trying to capture like the human experience that's actually quite a big part of it it's like you're in one place but your mind's in another place so i find that works really well as well it's another one of the things i mean because because she just basically does her own thing in the guardian for so many years um she she's developed a lot of techniques that no one else is using but also she's not using some techniques that i think she would probably benefit from using so she's a really interesting kind of creator from from that point of view and again you've got this whole page including the text <laughs> is turns out to be another thought bubble yeah that's an interesting technique isn't it i mean it's, yeah. it's very un unusual to see it is that, yeah but it really works yeah. well it's really really clever yeah really good stuff um so yeah um towards the end of the story like I said, you get you get um, some coincidences, and um, uh, with her plotting, all her stories tend to end with a death or something that appears like it might be a death. Which again, is not necessarily the best way to end a story because um, there are other ways to sort of bring a story to a climax and resolve the themes that don't involve with just the characters dying or you know nearly dying. So I think again, that is something that could be improved. Um, I didn't really find that the most satisfying. I mean, I really enjoyed the comic. It was still one of the best graphic novels that I read last year. Mm. But um, I found that as well with Tamara and Drew. I mean, Tamara and Drew, I really love a lot of the storytelling and the characterizations and the scenes. But at the end, there's like this double death. And it's just like, it just feels, and it all happens really suddenly. And you just feel like that's, you know, it comes almost comes out of nowhere. And you just feel, you know, the structure and the plotting isn't as good as it could be. And the resolution isn't as good as it could be. You know, you want to have an ending, but you don't want it necessarily to be to be that I mean this is quite nice because you know I don't want to give away anything but there's like a nice little sort of uh, postscript to events which gives some sort of a kind of satisfying close to it but mm -hmm. but um, yeah I think from that point of view um, I, I didn't totally love everything about it do you think that maybe that's some other external you know influences there because I always remember when I was young uh, when there was big news inside readers, you know, and basically suddenly some of your favourite strips would get wound up in, oh, one yeah. e in one episode, you know, and it all seemed incredibly rushed and, yeah. you know, and like you had to get to that end point because they're starting the new stories next week or they're, they're incorporating stories next week, you know, and it was almost yeah. like, do you think maybe there was an element of that or has been an element of that in, in her work that, you know, to fit into a format or, Yeah, you know, maybe with... Um... 
Tamara Drew because yeah. that was still very much newspaper strip. Yeah. Um, and I remember at some point she did, she sort of fell over and she hurt herself, uh, which would have affected her sort of output hmm. uh, for a while. I can't remember if that was Tamara Drew or Gemma Bovary, but it was one of them. So, um, yeah, I think the newspaper format that the stories were appearing in initially um, back then, I think that definitely does affect the structure of them. And they don't, they very much read like, things that every week you're just coming up with a new scene and a new page. So uh, one of the things that frustrated me about um, uh, Gemma Bovary was that you don't tend to get a lot of scenes that go over more than one page because it's very much like, well, this is a page in the paper every mm -hmm. episode and it has to be sort of read in that context. Whereas this is much more, this is much more a graphic novel. So you get yeah. scenes that sort of carry on over um, over pages and, and aren't just limited to a single page and it benefits a lot from that. Um, it's a really fantastic bit of work. It's just, mm. She's an absolute genius at so many aspects of the craft of comic book storytelling. like way, way, way better than me. So I always sort of love reading her stuff. Yeah, no, that's a really good choice. And again, we'll put a, a link up to some of the, the things we, we spoke about uh, onto the, the Facebook page. So uh, let's go back in time and pick up your classic choice. Yeah, well, this is um, Born Again by um, Mazzuccelli and Miller. So the uh, reason why I chose this because um one of my favourite sort of stories, um, but also I thought there were some elements that were quite interesting and quite comparable to Cassandra Dark um, as far as like um, some of the ways that the story's told and some of the things that are successful in it. It's obviously a very, very different bit of work. It's a superhero story and it was very much um, published at a time when comics were still, you know, single issue comics. You'd get them going on over sort of six issues, stories over six issues, but it wasn't about the graphic novel at that point. It was about, it was just really at the cusp when that was changing and it was starting to be that, oh, we can actually sell these as graphic novels, so mm. we should probably spend a bit more time on the colouring and the presentation and making sure there's a sort of discrete end and a beginning and so forth. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it bears comparison in a lot of the storytelling techniques that work in it. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's, um, let's have a look in here. Right, so straight away, <clears throat> I remember reading this. It was one of the first graphic novels that I ever bought um, when I was um, in my teenager, when I was a teenager. And I remember I, I hated it so much the first time I read it that I threw it across the room and damaged the spine. Um, eventually I picked it up and I carried on reading it. And I realised after a while that actually elements of it were absolute genius. But um, at that time, I didn't read superhero comics and I wasn't into superheroes. I didn't know anything about Daredevil. And I think what annoyed me the most, there was about sort of an issue in, I suddenly realised the guy that I was reading about was blind. And I just thought, given I'd just seen him like leaping across rooftops and bouncing off kind of telegraph poles and apparently he had some sort of radar senses or something. I just thought this was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> I like, literally threw it across the room thinking this is just crap. Um, but uh, picked it up again, carried on reading, and then what um, really grabbed me was just the quality of the writing and the brilliance of the artwork. Um, and the, the story, the plot is really good. Um, the story is really good. The characterizations are fantastic. Um, at this stage in his career, uh, Miller was capable of writing really nuanced characters and he would write characters that had different perspectives and um, he'd write like a wide spectrum of people and that would build like a picture of a sort of city 
uh, of New York, which I knew nothing about, but it would just bring it to life in a really real, uh, visceral way. Um, and in the latter part of his career, I think that nuance and that kind of uh, ability to be empathic with a wide variety of people was kind of deserted him, and his work suffers as a result. But but at this stage of his of his writing career, um, there's a lot of really great writing, um, and um, he it's quite intriguing because he starts off with this kind of omnis omniscient third person narration, and it's very much sort of in the sort of like. Uh, traditional kind of noir style winter hits Manhattan like an unwanted relative drops him with no warning and seems to stay forever you know he likes his hard-boiled mm. fiction um, so it's that kind of third-person narration um, but then very quickly it does this interesting thing where he moves um, on the third panel it moves he's, we're sort of following this character lying in bed who's Matt Murdock um, Daredevil on the third panel it goes to I didn't drink he thinks I didn't drink last night this only feels like a hangover. Um, so you're getting this thing like, I didn't. So it's it's going to the first person, but you're saying he thinks, which is the third person. So it's kind of like this blend. Mm -hmm. But then by the sort of fifth panel, it's gone straight into third per. It's gone straight into first person. So it's I didn't ask for it, but I became daredevil. I fight crime. That much I've done right with my life. So we've sort of blended from third person into first person across five panels yeah. which shouldn't work yeah. it should it shouldn't it's kind of it's um but it does work it works really well um and no visual cue for that because no, nowadays no. they yeah. probably would letter that in a different way absolutely but it's done yeah. it's oh, the, only, the only thing that, that sets it apart it's a yellow you know background in, in, yeah. in these uh, these panels but you know nowadays it'd probably be a different font or yeah, yeah. there'd be something going on there to signify that change and that's yeah. what's interesting that it's not there no and it's what's surprising about it is that it works yeah um and also that until i mean I've, I've read these things many times but each time i read them i find something new in them i didn't really notice that formal switch i mean I must have read that comic 10 or 15 times before I started to notice, hold on a second, this this shouldn't this shouldn't work. But it does. Um, it totally works. It doesn't feel weird, and it, it totally works, and it totally gets you. The, you've got the brilliant setting of the scene with the characterisation, uh, the omniscient sort of view of the city and the snow um, and and uh, him lying in his, his apartment, his brownstone apartment in New York, and then you 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 see him close up in bed and he's waking up and he's kind of feels a bit hungover and then you go into the first person by the fifth panel and you get kind of a view of the city you get a view of him you get a sense of place you get a sense of personality and it's really effortlessly done and it's really good it's really good writing um the other thing that's interesting as you can see there you've got on the first panel it's basically a splash page and then you've got like a lot of text down the left hand side of the page now that is very comparable to the blocks that Posey Simmons use where mm. it's like but she wouldn't put them in caption boxes yeah he's broken up all that text into one two three four five caption boxes which goes straight down the page now because they're broken up into caption boxes people just think oh that's just comics but if it was Posey Simmons and she didn't bother with the caption boxes and she just put that into sort of like you know two or three paragraphs of text people would say like ah that's not comics that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not that's not how comics and, work. And it's a comparable amount of, of it's words. a comparable amount of words yeah so um in fact across this whole sequence i mean there's so much text in these captions um it's very very similar to the amount of prose that 
Paisley Simmons puts in her stuff, but it's just um, the way it's it's uh, spread out across the each panel. Um, there's no prose blocks. There's just everything is within a panel border. Uh, that's another thing because Paisley Simmons doesn't often use panel borders. Um, there's gutters in between everything, and then within that you get the the three or five captions on a in, within a panel that that kind of lead your eye across the 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 uh, the page with the the, the words um, and the textual element coming from the from the from the prose, um, and that feels a lot more elegant. It feels a lot more comic-y. It, it's kind of a lot easier on the eye. You're getting led around the page in a much more kind of structured um, and unambiguous way. Um, so um, it's just really a different way of doing the same thing. And anybody that read this would say like, oh, this is just like a good comic. And they wouldn't remotely question that, oh, it's not a comic. Whereas people do question like the way Posey Simmons does yeah, it and say it's, it's not really a proper comic. It's interesting, isn't it? I it guess. is interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Because... Um, um, yeah, it's just it's just really a very kind of slight change in the presentation, yeah. but it has a huge effect. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting um, thing. Um, the other thing that Miller and um, Simmons both do really well is they just capture these tiny vignettes and these little moments in characters' lives um, again with the same sort of like very naturalistic dialogue. With like um, the use of the the, the, the um, you know, gaps between sentences and the incomplete sentences, and um, Miller uses the double caption uh, a lot more rather than the um, the sort of um, uh, the three dots, mm -hmm. um, and um, that works in the same sort of way, just to sort of have people talking in a in a in a way that he hears, and he's got a very good ear for dialogue. You've got Irish characters, you've got you know, characters from all around America and um, in Mexico and so on, and they all sort of have distinct voices and personalities that come across very quickly in their their short sort of amounts of dialogue. Um, so um, that works really well. Um, they're both really adept at having these very short scenes. I think a lot of times um, writers and people that are making comics, they, they feel that if they're having a scene or they're having something happen, it has to go on for a certain amount of time to be valid. Whereas both these creators, um, they, they're very comfortable having like scenes that are like maybe a panel, maybe three panels. Um, because it's so powerfully capturing that moment and getting across the storytelling point that they need to get across at that time, it works really well within the form of the greater, the greater whole. Um, so, um, yeah, they're both really, really good at... at doing that I think that's a really important part of good storytelling is having these kind of shorter scenes and these juxtapositions between between different um, storylines within one greater storyline I think that's a really important part of storytelling um, on this page this is sort of like about uh, 10 pages in you meet Ben Urich who's um, a reporter and this this is only this page is only a this scene is only a page long um, so you get the first establishing shot, then you're inside establishing shot of the newsroom, and then it's straight in on Ben Urich and you know what he's thinking. But even though we've never met this character, and even though it's only uh, a page long scene, it's straight away it's the first person. My name is Ben Urich. I'm a reporter. I'm working the night shift at a great metropolitan newspaper. When a piece of dynamite is dropped on my desk, it's not the kind that hisses. It just rustles in Robertson's hand. So. So um, 
uh, straight away you get a real sense of um, his kind of um, world and his kind of attitude and um, his personality. And we've never met this guy. Again, because this is like a 80s comic, you've got a different font for his text. Okay. But it uses the exact same colour yeah. as the sort of... Um, Matt Murdock's off earlier, and all the way through, actually, there's there's no the the, the colouring throughout the whole book is quite clumsy, and um, even Matt Murdock's captions they're constantly changing colour. There's no consistency in that sense yeah. from issue to issue because again, I don't think it was intended that it was going to be a graphic novel. It was only collected as a graphic novel later when you know Year One became popular and so forth. So so um, uh, when when the Dark Knight took off. Um, so, um, yeah, it just hasn't got that. It's got a lot of interesting traditional elements of old comic storytelling from the 80s. But um, because Miller and Mazzuccelli are so good at it, they kind of elevate it to a, to a higher level, mm-hmm. which I guess is a little bit like Simmons is working in that weekly, that weekly one-page episodic newspaper format, and she's kind of elevating it to something greater. And these guys are doing the same within a comic book single issue format, yeah. which yeah. is... Uh, Interesting. I mean, the colours are you know sort of of their time, I suppose. But there's some really nice sort of designed colour colour holds where they drop the black line out and replace it. There's a on on uh, on the page we're looking at in front of us. The shadow isn't isn't black. It's it's a, a lightish blue. You know, yeah, cyan. And uh, so they're trying to do stuff with the colours. Yeah, but it's almost like the technology isn't quite there yet. It's still that traditional. Yeah, colouring and flat areas of flat colour with no render on it, yeah. which stylistically gives it a bit of a different look or a bit more of a graphic look. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's it's very effective. Yeah, but it does look very dated now, and some of the colours are a bit garish because, um, yeah, they don't, especially because it's now printed in such beautiful paper. Right? At the time, yeah, it was probably on stock that was yeah. soaking that up a little bit, or yeah, it, it would have definitely been soaked up a little bit with yeah. the old newsprint and so mm. forth. Um, so, towards the end of the first issue, you've got you're meeting Foggy Nelson. So it does the same thing where it's like a third person kind of view, but even though it's third person, you're sort of getting the sense of what he's thinking. It goes from third person uh, initially in the first panel. The first thing Foggy Nelson feels that morning is an irritating knot at the base of his skull. He forgets it as soon as he smells the frying bacon and eggs and pancakes. Um, so I think that's a really important part of comic storytelling. I always try and do that is you try and involve all the senses. So you're thinking like, well, I've got visual because I've got images. Um, and I know what my characters are thinking because, you know, I'm using captions or, you know. So you try and use, you know, uh, what do things feel like? And what do they what do they smell like? Um, what do they sound like? That's why sound effects are so effective in comics. Um, it's like a soundtrack to the comic. Um, so yeah, he's um, they're both very adept at doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's so many first person views in this comic, but it never gets confusing as to who you're with, even though there's no consistency with the sort of color captioning or the the fonts sometimes that are used to differentiate people. Um, Karen Page later on, she's like trying to make her way back from Mexico to South America to sort of um, get to Matt. So 
she sort of sold him, sold out his secret identity, and, and she's trying to get it back to him. Um, that sort of um, it starts with the third person, but then very quickly goes into the first person. So you're seeing like the first person view of her kind of struggle to get back and what she's thinking as she's doing it. Um, it does the same thing that happened on the first page with Matt Murdock, where it literally goes from third person to first person within about sort of three or four panels. Mm. Um, but it really works well. It's um, it's it's surprising how well it works. Um, and I think it's important to remember that one of the great things with comics is you can always be in the head of your characters. You can always be seeing things from each character's point of view. And that's often even if you've got the same scene, if you can see the character, the same scene from a different character's point of view, that can be a really brilliant kind of storytelling technique. Um, the other thing that's brilliant about this comic is, of course, Mazzuccelli's amazing artwork. Yeah, this, it, I was just I was just thinking that myself. It, it, it sort of jumps between his style and Frank Miller's art style mm. quite a lot, a lot more than I thought it would. Yeah, you know, um, this, and I wonder how much of an influence you know, Frank Miller was mm-hmm. on the art because some of it does look like he's drawn it himself. Yeah, which is interesting to me anyway. Yeah. I think it's it's very much Masicelli's all Masicelli's work, but yeah. I think you know Frank would have wanted to work with him because he saw that that similarity. Yeah. Um, but Masicelli's a better artist than Frank is. Um, Frank's quite interesting because he's when you actually look at how he draws a panel or what's in it, it's not necessarily the strongest kind of anatomical drawing or the most emo- emotive or evocative rendering of whatever the character is doing that you could conceive of, but. It just works really well because he's drawn the exact right thing at the exact right time mm. that works in a really powerful way with the element, other elements of the comic, you know, the textual elements and the sound effects and stuff. Mm. It's quite interesting when you look at Dark Knight. A lot of the time you can't actually see what's going on as far as visually, and a lot of the knowledge comes from the sound effects and from the text and the dialogue that's overlaid over it. There's a lot of extreme close-ups. There's a lot of single, small panels. There's a lot of... Um, um, uh, sequences where the storytelling comes from elements other than the visual and that's actually really powerful because it makes the reader do the work in their mind um, whereas Mazzuccelli, he does he can do that but he's also like this page here where Eurix it's one of the most powerful scenes he's just come to try and talk to uh, this cop who's basically mm, the kingpin's got out and is um is lying in order to to, to get um, Matt Murdock um, prosecuted. Um, and just the body language, it's just a conversation between the reporter and Manello and the nurse. But the body language of everybody and the facial expressions and the sort of, it's very primitively rendered, but the lighting on when he's lighting his cigarette and the way he's just picking something out of his shoe, <laughs> it's like um, uh, here... I mean, these are really evocative. The, the body language of Murdoch as he's sort of struggling through the streets at the bottom there. Yeah. They're really evocative images and they really stay with you. They really stick with you. I, when I think about stories that I've seen and films that I've seen and books that I've read, you know, these kind of images, the sort of images that Posey Simmons does of a character, the way the character's standing or their body language or what they're wearing, everything that makes them who they are in a comic book. And the same, the same with Mazzuccelli, the way... He, He's got that sort of crumpled Colombo look to the sort of raincoat and 
and the, the personality of each character is different from the way they're standing and their body language expresses their mood. And Mazzuchelli is the absolute master of choosing the exact right image and body position and facial expression to convey visually what needs to be conveyed at that moment of the story uh, that works perfectly with the dialogue and the, the caption or the, the thought balloon. And that's yeah. why his work is so incredibly good. Yeah. Um, and that's why I really started to fall in love with this comic, even though I initially didn't like the character. Um, I, I just thought, wow, this is an absolutely brilliant bit of storytelling. You know, yeah, the visual. characters act in a very you know, real way. And, and so you see the body language or the bit of business that's going on and he's picking something off his shoe and stealing that scene. You know, a bit like an actor would, you know, yeah. or, would, would do a bit of business and you know, that, that's how they get noticed. And it's full of that. You know, it's full of those little yeah. elements that otherwise would maybe be quite a boring page you mm -hmm. know, to read. You know? Yeah. So... Um, Later on, this is like, um, is, the, is it the fourth or the fifth part of the story, God and Country? Um, so, again, I mean, just look at the body language of the mm. two people hugging there. It's amazing. Yeah. So evocative. And these people in the park with all the leaves and papers blowing around just gives you such a sense of place. And his brush, what I, what I always loved about his work is the brushwork. Mm. How there's not actually a lot there with the trees in the yeah. background. It's just the it's impressionistic. Of, yeah, you know. And um, yeah, it's almost as a, it's very similarly abbreviated to Simmons, the way she just very quickly will sketch something in pencil. Mm. Um, obviously, he's using ink, but the sort of level of sort of detail, it's almost like the less there is, the more evocative the character is, if you can capture it right. Mm -hmm. Um, so within about uh, one, two, three, four... Oh, that's a brilliant... I love that scene. It's a scene of um, 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 just someone just photographing various people around New York, and it just, it's the sort of thing that he just he's not capable of doing anymore. It's just like you just get like four panels that just totally capture someone's entire kind of attitude and their personality and differentiates them from other characters and... It's just a really brilliant bit of um, fiction. You know, it's a great bit of writing. Yeah. Um, but very quickly, you get this sequence where Yurik uh, visits um, the nurse who's now been sort of um, um, arrested because um, she was um, she was knocking off um, the suspect uh, witnesses. Um, and he visits her in prison. And you get this, um, what is it, four pages? One, two, three, yeah, it's like three and a half pages. And it's probably one of the greatest scenes ever in comics as far as, like, visual storytelling and body language and characterization. Um, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six characters in a cell, and um, they've all got different personalities in every panel from their body language and their facial expression, the way they're standing, what they're doing, um, they all express so much emotion. Um, they're all sit. There's two of them sitting there, and they they're sitting in different ways, which expresses different things. There's four of them standing, but they're standing in different ways. So they all express different things. It's just an absolutely amazing bit of um, visual storytelling. And then, you know, it's a it's an action sequence. So very quickly, the bent cop pulls out a gun, which again is fantastic composition there with the, the 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 revolver in the foreground and the 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 other cop reacting in the background you just get these tiny little broke broken bits of dialogue which is literally just whoop because people are like what the hell's going on and then suddenly one of them starts opening fire and um you know the whole thing's still being 
it's, it's the storytelling. You can't. You have to. You have to read the sequence to sort of appreciate how good it is. The sound effects in it, which are incorporated into the artwork, the blam and the click and the click of the um, the camera and the uh, um, impact of the bullets and so forth. But then the next two pages are completely silent, um, and the facial expressions and the like even like the hands the sort of tension in the hands of the desperation in the hands as he's trying to grasp for the gun and struggle for his life it's just an absolutely amazing bit of storytelling it's like it's unsurpassed i think yeah, as far as to me that's sequences like this this is why i love this comic is because the this uh, year one which is again miller and mazzuccilli is a, is about bad story it's about comic it's about gra- graphic novel but um this has many, many scenes and many sequences that are better than anything in that comic. Um, and this was really what um, DC, this is why DC gave them that platform to do year one, which was a prestige kind of f- format thing, um, always planned to be sort of collected. Um, because this was just so damn good. And mm-hmm. there's just scenes in this that are actually, I think, better than anything in year one. Yeah. And it's just incredible. Um, uh, everything that's good about comics, you can find examples of in this sequence and like if i ever did anything half as good i would be delighted it's a it's a choreography in that scene oh, that is unbelievably complicated is. yeah and you know an artist looking at it, it looks really simple yeah this you know it's not a lot it's not over rendered no there's not a lot in the panels and mm. um, but the angles and the movement and the implied movement and the expressions and everything just comes together and you're right. It's a it's a really powerful uh, sequence, you know. Yeah. Um, and again, it just looks so simple. So you know, people look at it and probably don't really appreciate how complex. Yeah, that is. it looks effortless. I think whenever you're doing good comics, it should look and feel effortless. Mm. But that totally belies the incredible amount of work going on behind the scene. And when you read something like this, you just assume like, oh, he's just a brilliant artist. You know, he's miles better than me, and you know, he's a genius. But <laughs> Um, I talk, hang, I, hang up her pens now and brushes <laughs> yeah but I talked to him uh, I met him once and I talked to him and I said like you know how much of an effort was it to do that work and he said I'm not joking it absolutely killed me he said it killed me and um, you realise how much he was putting into it to reach this level to make it look effortless mm. and that's probably why you know after doing year one he didn't really do anything similar again he sort of like you know, he took a university position and then he's been doing his own comics, which mm. have a much um, simpler kind of style of art and uh, also brilliant, brilliant art and brilliant storytelling. And he's writing his own stories now. You know, Asterius Polyp is one of my favourite graphic novels. Mm. Um, and uh, I also like City of Glass. Um, so, you know, he's doing, um, still making comics, but in a kind of much more, uh, less intensive kind of way. And much more of a personal way, mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're great stories. But um, I think it just shows that if he could, if he could do this kind of stuff easily, just sort of like without much effort, he probably still would do stuff like that occasionally. But it's just not; it's so much hard work. Yeah. I think people always underestimate how much work goes into stuff like this. Yeah. It's not sustainable for, for across a career. Yeah, you know? often no, not. And um, but it still stands as one of the pinnacles, I think, of the of the medium. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, as I was thinking about these two very different graphic novels you know made by very different people in different countries at different times I was just struck that a lot of what's good about them is actually the same so it's like there's quite a heavy reliance on the textual element on the words to do the storytelling there's quite a lot of prose that's 
use to tell the story and add texture, texture and depth and richness to the, the the locations and the characters, and to um, to add um, more to the the story itself, and um, the the level of the cart the cartooning, the caricaturing, the visual storytelling, is 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 incredibly high, um, and obviously used to different effects, uh, but um, both both incredibly. Incredibly powerful, mm. um, and it, you, that's why I like reading all this kind of stuff because you sort of you can take things from all these things. You can take lessons from all these kind of people, and then try and incorporate those lessons into your own work, which is what I always try and do when I'm making a comic. And also, um, you know, when I'm reading comics, I'm always looking for people that have, are building on you know the best stuff that's around and making something of their own with it. Um, that's what kind of attracts me to a comic yeah uh, a modern comic anyway yeah well, great i mean that's two great choices again and you know i think um like you say there's a there is a they are very different but like you say very similar in, in certain areas so please uh, if you're not aware of these uh, graphic novels then uh, pick them up we'll put some pictures on the, the facebook page so you can uh, at least re refer to them and if not pick them up yourself so thanks for coming along today and uh, sharing your choices and telling us what you're working on in the future so thanks very much my pleasure join us next time on Comic Scene the podcast